today we uh, are going to finish our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Before we do, can we say the mission statement together? You ready? Get by memory? <laughs> by memory? Here we go. Ready? We seek to be a city within a city in Alton is Chicago that passionately loves Jesus Christ, intentionally engages an authentic community, and radically advances the cause of Jesus. Today, as we finish the sermon series on Ten Commandments, we probably come to the most challenging of them all. We are finishing by going over the Tenth Commandment. Do you know the Tenth Commandment? By memory. Do you know the Tenth Commandment? Anybody? <laughs> Don't even know it. Okay. Here's the Tenth Commandment, all right? I'm going to put it up on the screen. No, not that. Go back. Go back. The Tenth Commandment. Exodus 20, verse 17 is where we find it. Let's read it together. Here we go. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The Tenth Commandment essentially says, do not covet. Do not covet. The Hebrew word for covet has the sense of to lust after or to long for with great desire. Coveting is, I describe it this way, an inner grasping. Coveting is an inner grasping. It's an issue of an attitude of the heart after things, after people that says, here's the key, I have to have these things or I'm empty. Coveting is an inner grasping after things that says, I must have these things or I have to have more of these things or my life isn't complete. Coveting and inner grasping. Immediately a question is asked. Peter, what's the difference between wanting something and coveting? What's the difference between wanting something and coveting? And here's a little picture for you. In wanting, you're the dog and the want is the tail. In coveting, the want is the dog. And you're the tail. And coveting when the want wags, you wag along with it. Coveting is an inner grasping wanting that says, I have to have this or I'm dead. And you are dead because that want has you by the throat. That want has its fingers around your throat and you can't live without it. Coveting. Interestingly enough, as you hear that, you think about, well, that sounds a lot like idolatry. And it is. And it is. Matter of fact, the New Testament says this, Paul, Colossians 3, 5, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Here it is. And covetousness, which is what? Which is? idolatry. And I have to say this this morning. The reason why many of us are unhappy, 
The reason why many of us are angry, the reason why many of us are frustrated, the reason why underneath some of the depression, anxiety, and worry is coveting and the sin, the idolatry of covetousness. That want has become a non-negotiable. That want has become the thing I must have. That want has become something I can't live without. That want has become, I, unless I have this, my life is meaningless. That want underneath it all has become an idol, a god. And if you've been paying attention, we've come full circle, haven't we? Because we began the sermon series, the first commandment saying, How shall have no other gods before me? And here we are. Thou shall have no other gods before you. Now, here's the interesting thing that you and I need to realize. The Ten Commandments, if you're joining us today, we've been saying throughout, that many of them in the negative, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But there is throughout Scripture a positive invited as well as a negative uh, prohibited. So do not steal, positively was be radically generous. Do not commit adultery, positively was have great sex as God ordained it. Do not murder was consider every single life is more sacred than anything you've encountered. So when we come to this commandment, you ready for this? You ready for this? You ready for this? Here's what this commandment is saying to you and me. Thou shalt not covet is his. You shall love the Lord your God enough to be totally content in all circumstances. Thou shalt not covet essentially says, you shall love the Lord your God enough so that you will be totally content in all circumstances. Okay, so how many of us are um, violating the 10th commandment? Yeah. The 10th commandment, you shall love the Lord your God enough to be totally content in all circumstances. That's what this commandment is saying. The first commandment, the 10th commandment, essentially like bookends and they summarize the whole. First commandment, love the Lord your God. The 10th commandment is actually the result of the first commandment. Love God enough, the result, so that you will be content in all circumstances. And as we've been saying throughout this journey, the root sin of all the sins in our lives, the root underneath. And I'm constantly trying to get you guys to go like at the root, the underneath root sin from all of these other sins that flow. Two to nine is coveting. Because if you and I love God enough to be content in all circumstances, why would we want to steal sex? If we love God enough to be content in all circumstances, why would we want to steal money? Why would we want to steal uh, revenge? Why would we want to need any of these things? If we love God enough, result, to be content in all circumstances, we would not violate commands. One, two, nine. If we love God enough to be content in all circumstances, our attitude is pleasure is good. Pleasure is nice. Food, sex, Money, success, career, those are nice things. Those are great things. As we'll see, that God created, God designed for us to enjoy. Christianity is not against pleasure. I don't know where we get this idea. Christians don't want pleasure. And C.S. Lewis argues the reality is we don't want pleasure enough. 
pleasure, nice. But when you understand this commitment, you realize those pleasures, it's like frosting on cake. Anybody like frosting on cake? I love frosting on cake. Some of y'all know, buy me a cake, add extra two, three layers of frosting on cake. I'll go for the frosting first. But you can't live on frosting. There's some doctors in our room today. What would happen to you if you had frosting breakfast, lunch, dinner for a month? (laughs) Where it was, I'm going, that sounds pretty nice. It's like frosting. Food, sex, money, those are great pleasures. God says, I gave those things for you to enjoy, but it's like frosting. You know what the difference is? Christianity is not against pleasure. Christianity looks at pleasure and says this, I will not worship pleasure, nor will I abstain from pleasure. I will enjoy it. You know what the difference is? Christians, when you enjoy pleasure, you go, when I have it, I go, this is nice, but it could be taken away tomorrow, and I'm okay. Christians also go, but this isn't where my life is found. Christians don't abstain from pleasure, nor do they worship it. They enjoy it. And if you enjoy it, your attitude is, whether I have it, whether I don't, I'm good. You know what's really interesting, though, as a pastor? The ironic thing is, when you covet after something, when you finally get it, you don't even enjoy it. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Say yes if you do. This is is the most ironic thing. You covet after something and you finally get it and you don't even enjoy it. Can I take it even further? It's even weirder than that. When you covet after something, you find out that the thing that you love the most when you finally get it, now it makes you the most angry. It makes you the most worried. It makes you the most anxious. You covet after it. You get it. Not only do you not enjoy it, but after a while, the thing that you love the most, you begin to hate it. What is that? What's that all about? The passage we're going to look at in the New Testament. We've been doing this throughout this sermon series. Take a look at the commandment, then go to a deeper text. Where Paul lays out what it means to love God enough so that we will be content in all circumstances. Found in Philippians 4. Philippians 4. So we turn to Philippians 4, verse 10. Where Paul says this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. At last you made your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. By the way, 
<laughs> Is there a verse that's been more misused than this verse? I don't know why, but every time I see this verse, I have a picture of Evander Holyfield with, his, with the Philippines and other boxers and other MMA fighters. Talk about taking scripture out of context. I could whoop him through him who gives me strength. That's not what the verse is saying. It's not what it's saying. It's not what it's saying. Do you know when Paul wrote this? Paul's in prison. Paul is in prison facing torture, execution, and he is at complete peace. The Apostle Paul is in prison. And in the face of things that would utterly crush you and me, there is poise, there is an inner peace, there is an inner calm. We can't even face our bosses. We can't even face our dateless calendars. We can't even face our bills. We can't even face our mom and dads. We have a hard time facing any of these things. And yet, in the face of things that would utterly devastate us, torture and ultimate execution, this guy has the audacity to say, I'm good. I could just see him if the hymn was around saying, It is well. It is well with my soul, with my soul. This is hugely encouraging. Do you know why? Because the immediate reaction for many of you, like I used to read this passage and go, that's not encouraging, that's discouraging. I can't do that. That's the apostle Paul. He's a super apostle. He like knew God like this. I'm not that spiritual. It's just little old me. I used to read this passage and go, how is this encouraging? This isn't. Here's why this is encouraging. You ready? The experience of this kind of commandment, listen carefully. It's not an offer. It's a command. You're still not encouraging me. I'll tell you why it's encouraging. If it was an offer, it'd be amazing in and of itself that in Christianity, in Christ, you could experience this kind of contentment, inner poise, in the face of anything. That is amazing if Christianity offered this. But it's not an offer. It's a command, which means that it's not just for the super spiritual among you. You know, if you're like, you could experience this. If it's a command... Paul is saying it's available to anyone who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Is that good news? It's not an offer. It's a command which says, so it's not just for people like, no. For anyone who has Christ in their lives, Paul is saying this kind of it is well execution it is well with my soul. Torture with my soul is available to all. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's not just a pipe dream for the super spiritual among us. Paul's saying it's available to all. 
By the way, if you're wondering, the word contentment, Paul here uses a little Greek word, autarkeia, from the word archeo, which means to be full, to be satiated. You ever know what it's like to eat a good meal? Doesn't even have to be expensive. Home-cooked meal. And you don't eat so much that you're uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm laughing because that's how I am. I eat until I'm uncomfortable, if it's good. You know what I mean? And I need people around me to go... Why do you do that to yourself? And I go, I don't know. I do that to myself. What Paul's talking about here is getting to a point where you're going, whoa, that was good. Do you want some more? No, 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 no. That's good. I'm full. I'm satiated. It's not a physical satiation. It's a soul satiation. Where you can go, oh, I'm good. I'm okay. That was wonderful. It is well. It is well. And the amazing thing is, <laughs> Paul doesn't go, I have learned a secret to be content. Nah, 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 nah. He doesn't do that. He goes, here's how you could learn it too. So we look. Verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. By the way, are you content this morning? How many of you are sitting there going, I've got no angst, no drive, no eh, no... No, I'm just, this is God. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I need to preface by saying the next insight is completely 100% from C.S. Lewis and mere Christianity because I'm not that smart. Why does Paul use the word secret when he's talking about the fact that he's learned to be content? Why does he use the word, I've, why does he just go, I've learned to be content? Why does he go, I've learned the secret to be content? It's incredibly important and insightful. The word secret means two things. One, it's not easy to find, but we all want it. It's not easy to find. We all, contentment, we all want it. It's not easy to find. We all want it. It's not easy to find. The question, of course, is why? Why does contentment that we all want elude us? Why is it not easy to find? Are we just greedy? And God's people said, yes. Are we just materialistic? And Americans said, yes. But go deeper. Go deeper. Why is contentment, the next three minutes, either I'm going to like, ha-ha you, or next three minutes you're going to be like, I'm still confused. Why is contentment something that is, yeah, something we all want, but it's difficult to find? Here's why search for contentment, here's why our search for contentment always comes up short. Deep inside each and every one of us is a longing and a desire for beauty, for relationship, for love, for success. For affection. Deep inside every single one of us is a desire for all of these things. That's why when you meet somebody, you go, finally, I'll never be lonely again. Finally, I've got that job. I've made it. Finally, I have kids. My life is complete. Finally. But here's what we realize. We realize that when you get 
to that object or the thing that aroused that desire, you realize very quickly what? It doesn't have the ability to satisfy that desire. Let me say that again. You get near that thing and it arouses a desire. <gasps> so it's natural to assume <gasps> it aroused it. It's got to be able to satisfy it. But then you get close to it and what happens? It doesn't. It won't. And it messes you up. It messes me up. You hear what I'm saying? You get near that thing go, it's aroused this desire for fulfillment, for affirmation, for love. And if it aroused it, you must be able to fulfill it. But it doesn't. Because it can't. And it won't. So we go, wait a minute. What, what, what just happened? What just happened? And you realize that the desire for that finite thing that underneath that desire is what? It's a desire for something infinite. They realize, wait, 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 maybe, maybe there's a desire under the desire. How else do you explain? You arouse this thing in me. You must be able to, but you can't. And you don't. Remember how I said earlier that the thing that you love the most often makes you the most angry? Think right now about the thing that you were saying nine months ago, two years ago, that said, if I could only relationship, success, marriage, children, that career. If I could only. Now I want you to think right now, today, about what's got you angry. What's got you worried. What's got you anxious. What's got you depressed. Are they the same thing? The thing that we most love most intensely arouses this longing, desire, fulfillment, satisfaction. But then you realize, but you don't have the ability to meet it. But you don't have the ability to satisfy it. You will never have, please pay attention. You will never have a decent marriage. You will never have a decent career. You will never have a decent friendship until you realize that great friendships, true loves, and wonderful careers are tremendously dangerous because it will arouse that desire, that longing, and not be able to meet it. And not be able to meet it. Do you know how many married couples I meet with? Uh, okay, well, we'll get there in a moment. So, what are these things then? What are these things that arouse the desire? Well, the command actually covers them. In the command, thou shalt not covet, there's three categories, right? Your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, and then your neighbor's possessions. In the book of First John... It talks about those three things on the same categories, except John calls them the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So let's talk about what those things are. Some of us, some of us, we find that the thing that most arouses this desire is romance or sex. Lust of the flesh, your neighbor's wife. There are some of you 
who are sitting here going, if I could just have the right one, then my life will be okay. If I could just find the right guy or woman or marriage, then I'll be okay. That's your religion. Now I'm a Christian. No, that's your religion. I'm a Buddhist. No, that's your religion. That's what you're basing your life on. If I could just find the right, if I could just be in a happy marriage. That's what we believe. And here's what happens. You ready? You get into that relationship and marriage and you realize (laughs) because you put your entire weight on that, that that relationship can't hold that weight. No human being can satisfy the longing and all the longing you have for affirmation and intimacy. I'm going to tell you right now. And if you go into a marriage and relationship expecting that person to meet your entire longing for intimacy, it's going to turn toxic and dysfunctional. Are you hearing me? I'm a Christian. That may be true, but the belief that you're basing your life on is if I could just meet the right person. Or sometimes some of us turn to sex. Please don't confuse sex with love. Please don't confuse sex as a shortcut to love. There's nothing lonelier than the second after you sleep with somebody and they don't even know your name. Or they even care about you. I know our culture bombards us with this lie. Physical connection equals spiritual intimate connection. They don't. It doesn't. The longing that's aroused. Romance. Sex. Some of us are walking around going, that'll do it. That'll. For some of us, it's uh, aroused not by romance and sex, but by possessions and wealth and accumulation of it and things. The lust of the eyes. That's what we think will satisfy the desire. So we live right now with, oh, if it was just bigger. Oh, if it was just shinier. Oh, if it was just newer. This is such common sense, it's, it's silly repeating it. Money doesn't buy you happiness. You know what else money can't buy? Security. For most people in America, money equates security. If I just have enough money, I'll be secure. Money can't stop cancer. Money can't stop car accidents. Money can't stop divorce. Don't buy the lie that says if you have enough money, you'll be secure. Can I just ask you a question? Are you generous? Are you generous with your stuff? Do you know why? Covetousness actually is the greatest enemy towards generosity. How many times have you been in a situation where someone was in need and you thought about giving, but the first thing that pops into your your mind is, wait a minute, but I really need that thing. I only want that thing. I haven't kind of saved enough of it. Why are you all laughing? So, so, so at the moment, we have a decision. Should I give or should I? How often does generosity not happen in our lives because of covetousness and accumulation of things? Are you sitting around going, if I just had enough stuff and wealth and bank account check, 
What's the third? Uh, third is uh, your neighbor's house, which really is about power and status and getting ahead in my career. It's what John calls the pride of life. If I could just make it, and then you tell me, you get to the it, and then you realize what? There's another it. And you get to the it in your career performance, and then you realize there's another it, a never-ending it. And you realize, actually, that you don't have it. It has you by the throat. You realize, I'm going after it. And you realize, no, 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 it's actually after you. Some of us are sitting here sacrificing our marriages for our careers. We sacrifice our children at the altar for achievement. We will sacrifice and regard relationships because of our pursuit. Can I ask you something? What are your goals? Because a lot of times our goals is what we covet. So if you have, if you covet the wrong things, you will have wrong goals. And with wrong goals, you will sacrifice that which is of infinite value for that which has little value. Let me say that again. You covet the wrong things, you'll have wrong goals in life. And the wrong goals will dictate what you sacrifice for, what you don't. And I'm going to say it again. You really think it's worth it right now to sacrifice your family, your marriage, your relationships, your relationship with God for that? What are your goals? What are your goals? Some of us will find that at the end of it all, in the accumulation of everything, that we will lose ourselves in the process. And please, this isn't just about money and wealth. Some of us, it's causes. I give my life for that cause. So what's going on? If there's a deep longing in the heart for something that nothing can satisfy. If these things arouse this desire but can't fulfill it, what are we after? What are we ultimately wanting? C.S. Lewis, ladies and gentlemen. His quote. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pressures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. The next quote floors me every time. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing.
When you first fall in love and you say, this is it, this is it, this is going to fill me up. And it doesn't when you first break into your career and you say, this is it, finally I've made it. It won't. And the reason why some things that arouse the desire can't fulfill the desire is because there is a desire underneath the desire. And the desire underneath the desire that Paul says is that you and I have been created by God and for God. The desire for love is to be ultimately met by Him. The desire for affirmation and approval that drives you and drives you and drives you for that cause, for that career, for that marriage is to be met by Him. The desire for the finite is desire for the infinite. You want something out of life that's greater than life. You want something out of this world that's greater than this world. Underneath the love, you want God's love. Underneath the acclaim and success, you want God's approval. To which you are going, well, duh. Of course, I know that you are going to go. You need God in your life. Boo-hoo. I showed up for that, Peter. No, I'll tell you why you and I know this here, but we struggle with it. Uh, first and foremost, Tom Brady. Um, I'm a big Patriots fan. Do you all know that? Don't be a hater. Don't, don't hate on me. Tom Brady. What's that? They're questioning me? Okay. Oh, okay. You could question me. If I could just be serious for a moment. Uh, after the Super Bowl, I set myself, I, 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 I found myself wondering about actually a 60 minutes interview that I saw a few years back. In 2007, when the Patriots were going on their run, and by the way, you know that I rarely use sports analogy because not everybody could relate to sports analogy, so excuse your pastor for one moment because I'm a big sports fanatic junkie and it, it takes a lot of restraint to not use sports analogy until it's really, really pertinent, you know. Okay. 15 and 0. They're about to go undefeated regular season. And he was interviewed by Steve Croft to 60 Minutes. At the time, at the time, he had been MVP twice of two Super Bowls, Pro Bowl four times. He was that year voted the male athlete of the year. At the time, he was dating and marrying to her, some lady. Um, and up until that time, he'd been called America's most bachelor, blah, 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 and on and on. Anyway, anyway the, the following statement during the interview floored me. He says this. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. And me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Then Croft asks him, well, what's your answer? And Tom Brady says this. 
I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football and I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I wish I knew. There are parts of me that I'm trying to find. See, you, you, you and I go, well, shoot, if I was him, I'd be like, don't need anything else. You and I, do you know why we do that? And we miss the point? Do you know why we continue to live with this life fly? All of us have a life fly that says, if I was just married, and then you get married, you know what you say? Oh, if I was just married to the right person. Oh, I wasn't expecting that response. <laughs> Caitlin, welcome to our church. (laughs) Marriage counseling, everybody. Do you know why we live with that illusion? And I'm dead serious. Because my marriage counseling sessions, and Master Baby, Pastor Michael will relate to this too. Do you know underneath some of the complaints, what I'm hearing from spouses is, I married the wrong person. Careers, some people are absolutely devastated because they're like, yeah, and what they're essentially saying at the end of this, I'm just not in the right job. And we live every day with this life's lie. Do you know why we do this? And the myth that we believe is never shattered? <laughs> Paul tells us. Did you catch it? Paul tells you and me why we live this life life. Verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. The reason why you and I believe this myth and stay, frankly, immature for a long time is because most of us in this room have never had the experience of having plenty or nothing. And we live in the middle. And so we live with this illusion. If I could just, if I could just. The reason why we stay immature and live this myth, if I could just have that, let me be very clear, is because we neither experience, I won the lottery, or I've lost everything. And so you live in the middle with this illusion. If I could just, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just. The worst thing that could happen to you and me, sorry, bad news. The worst thing is to experience a little bit of success, but not a whole lot. Because then you'll go, if I could just, if I could, or face a little bit of disappointment, but not utter crushing disappointment. The only thing that will wake us up from this illusion is plenty or nothing. If you live in the middle, Every day. If I could just. uh, I've been a pastor for 25 years. The people for whom God is most real. Are people who hit rock bottom. And lost everything. There's some people getting flat out emotional right now. Because that is their testimony. They've lost everything. And the delusion has been shattered. Or people who reach the pinnacle of their life only to go, oh, this is 
the reason why you and I walk around every day living this myth is we neither have plenty or nothing. That space is intentional, by the way. I just need to think. Two things and I'm done. Signs of covetousness, in case you're sitting there going, I don't know if I'm struggling with covetousness. So for those of you that like need blatant like this is you, I'm going to cover it, okay? Because <laughs> I think for the vast majority of us, we're going, crap, I hope he goes to the gospel and some good news. Because right now, I'm just feeling pretty bad. I will. I will. Signs of covetousness for those of you thick-headed like me. And then how to learn contentment. You ready? Signs of covetousness. By the way, you know, it's not, are you greedy? It's so obvious. Are you materialistic? So obvious. You know me. I try not to be obvious. Let's go deeper. First is this. Signs of covetousness. You're never commit to anything or to anyone. And you're always changing. Do you know why there's a sign of covetousness? How many of us sitting here going, the reason I'm unhappy is because I need a better spouse? Don't answer that. The reason I'm happy, I need a better career. I need a better boss. I need a nose job. I need whatever. You blame everything and everyone. You go, if I'd be happy, if I had a better career, blah, 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 blah. And what this does to you and what this does to me is it drives you. It makes you anxious. But most of all, it makes you totally afraid to commit to anything. You're the type of person, if you covet, first sign of discomfort, first sign of inconvenience, first sign of this is going to take work, I'm out of here. The first sign that it's not meeting your needs and making you happy, I'm out of here. So you don't commit to relationship. You don't commit to friendships. And the other thing this says to you, you're constantly changing. Do you know people constantly changing their looks, constantly changing their appearance, changing their friends, changing their careers? <laughs> this describes 80% of our church, changing their jobs, changing their life. We're constantly changing, which makes for a really, really difficult and unstable life. Do you realize at the root of your, I need to change, I need to change, I need to change, might be the sin of covetousness? Preach. I will, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much. Boy, this is an uncomfortable sermon today. Second sign, oh, you'll love this one. You compare and you despair. Good Lord, man. I don't even need to say enough, right? I just put that up there and be gone with it. Some of you actually believe people's Facebook lives. Ha! You actually believe that's like reality. 
It blows my mind that you actually believe the press releases that people put out of themselves. This is crazy to me. Do you not realize that every person that's walking in Chicago is putting out press releases and they don't want you to know how unhappy they are. They don't want you to know how empty their lives are. And yet, what do you and I do? Well, shoot, I wish I had that. Well, shoot, if my life was only... And you compare, you compare, you compare your children to other people's children. Shame on you. Don't do that. Please don't do that. You compare your, your job to other people's jobs. You compare your stuff, house, cars. You compare your marriage to other people. You compare and, disp- you, and, and you blame yourself. If I was only, if I... You're at the bottom root of that. Yeah, if you're like tweeting and texting or whatever, you could say that. Okay? Compare and despair. Sin of covetousness. Third, third, third. You become cynical and hard-hearted. Yes, I'm talking to some of you in here. Here's what you say. You know what? This is what some of you say. I've given my life to a whole lot of things and they haven't satisfied me. I've been so stupid. These things are never going to satisfy me. Because you found out that you gave yourself to things that you thought would satisfy you and those things didn't, you now go, I am not going to give myself to anything. It's kind of like you didn't like what you smelled, so you cut off your nose. Well, I gave my heart to love and he shattered it. So now I'm going to harden it so nobody can hurt it. I worship those things and it devastated me. So I'm going to worship nothing, not even God. And your heart is so hard right now. You are so cynical right now. You know what that does to you and me? It blinds you. It blinds you to beauty. It blinds you to love. It blinds you to community. It's amazing how many cynical and hard-hearted people walk around going, nobody loves me. Nobody cares. And I'm going, nobody loves you? Nobody cares? This world is just go. You don't see any beauty. Has your heart become hard? Cynical. (gasps) Is your heart becoming hard? Becoming cynical. Lastly, real quick, you become ungrateful. Some of us are so preoccupied with what we don't have that we become completely blinded to what? Say it with me. What we do. How do we um, learn the secret to contentment? I'm almost done. 
And we need to pray today. We really need to. Cece, we need to pray today. Not yet, not yet. One, you have to learn true contentment. Do you hear what Paul says? It's not discovered. He learns it. He's talking about a process. Is that good news to anybody? It doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> and don't y'all, some of you will go home and go, it's a spiritual gift. It's not a spiritual gift. Don't waste your time. Lord, I need the spiritual gift of contentment. It's not a spiritual gift. You got to do the hard work. You got to learn it. It's a process. It takes weeks, months, years. You have to learn it. And here's what we need to do first. Identify and unmask the idols. The 10th commandment is just a result of the first. You shall love God enough to be totally content in all circumstances. I'm going to tell you right now, the only things in your life and my life that is going to make us miserable, the only things in our lives that's going to make our lives miserable are things we place before God. You will not, I will not covet if we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We covet because we do not love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the question is, as you identify and unmask it, what is the source of your self-esteem? Be honest. What is the source of your self-worth? What is the source of your identity? What do you look to in order to give you credibility with other people? What makes you acceptable in the sight of God? What are you saying today? I have to have it or I'm dead. What besides Jesus has become my salvation, my identity, my joy, my main preoccupation, my loyalty, my delight? What are you saying? These things I have to have. These things that you're after, I'm going to say it again, they're after you. If you think, if only I can get it, it has you, my friend. You have to ask, what is driving my discontent? Identify it. Have enough courage to identify it and be honest and saying this is what it is. Secondly, you got to preach the gospel to yourself. We are great at listening to our hearts. We are terrible at preaching to our hearts. Read the Psalms. What does the psalmist do? He is preaching to his heart. David is constantly preaching to his heart. You and I are great at listening to our hearts. And do you know what our hearts say all day, every day, nonstop? You got to have it. That's your identity. That's your significance. Look at her. Look at him. Look at them. Look at it. Preach the gospel. And here's what it looks like. That is not my righteousness. That is not my salvation. And when I am in need, I preach the gospel to learn to love God more. And especially when I have plenty, I preach the gospel and I say, this is not my salvation. This is not my righteousness. This is not my life. This is a blessing from God. But God, you don't owe me anything. Thank you for the gift. But whether I have it, whether I don't, I don't need it. Preach the gospel to yourself regularly. And don't just listen to your heart. Your hearts, good Lord. Third, community. 
You can't just preach the gospel to yourself because some of y'all be like, is it just me? Is it just me? Is it just me? You need somebody else to go. Valencia, that is not your salvation. Valencia, that is not your righteousness. You need somebody to go, Laura, God loves you. He is your identity. He is your source of hope. Are you doing that in your small groups? Are you constantly, every time you meet, before you go, how was your week? How was lunch? How was dinner? How was your job? At some point, do you look at each other and go, Sissy? Okay. <laughs> do you know why when you community? Because if you're not in community with a diverse group of people, you will confuse the difference between needs and wants. How many of us, how many of us are walking around with people who are at the same socioeconomic level or higher than us and we're constantly walking around going, well, shoot, my house isn't as big. And you have no idea that there are people who don't own a home who look at you and go, are you in community with people who every day tangibly remind you What is it you do have? And lastly, see, see, you can come on up. You have to say it with me. Oh, come on now. Accent that S and just say it. You have to feast on God. Come on, say it. Like when you swear, you drop that F bomb like, this is a godly word. You know what I'm talking. Like, say it with meaning, ready? You have to feast on God. That's what Philippians 4.13 means when it says, I can do all things through him. It's what Psalmist says when he says, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will, and my favorite verse in Psalms, taste and see. What? That the Lord is God. Do you know why, even though you and I have the capacity and the ability to be content, we do not experience it? Because true contentment does not come to a Christian who lives on the fringes of Christianity, but people who go downtown. You will never know true contentment, Christian, if you live with one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus. Contentment will elude you unless you're the type of Christian who says, I'm going to go all in. Flitting about with mud pies, as C.S. Lewis says, out on the fringes of Christianity. And in case you're going, I don't know, is that me? This is you if you're on the fringes. You're going, Jesus, can you come and be my advisor? Can you be my helper? Can you be my counselor? If you're downtown, you go, you're my Lord and my King. Command me. The answer is yes. Here's the difference. Uh, I need a little, you know, help. Self-help. And little Jesus help. <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> what? 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 You will not know true contentment if Jesus is invited to go along on the ride that you have already set for yourself. You, 
better get out of the driver's seat and go drive. My career, my future, my marriage. Do you see why contentment is elusive? You won't know it if you're on the fringes going, it's a little dabble here, little. You have to go in. All the way in. All the way in. Make great sacrifices for that which is our highest value. And if God is the greatest good and the of infinite value, would we not make sacrifices for Him? Would we not? If He is ultimate and if He is the thing that we long for, would we not make sacrifices to attain it, to be with Him? I leave you with the words of Jesus in his secret to contentment. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for you to gain the whole world but forfeit your own soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul?
give you about a minute to pray before we pray for our offering and collect it. Can I invite you, church family, in this next moment as you pray and respond? going, I don't mean it right now, Peter. I can't say it. That's okay. He knows your heart. He knows your heart. When you're saying it, what you're saying is, God, if it's not true, I want it to be. I want it to be. I want it to be true of me. Say it with me. Ready? God, you are enough for me. Say it again. God, you Say, God. 